Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. What a great opportunity we have before us, Lord, as we get to hear these great words out of your scriptures, out of your Bible, from one of your writers, your, one of your pastors, one of your teachers, James, who wrote to the church many years ago, but the words, Lord, he wrote still apply to us today. Father, we listen into this scripture, and Lord, we know that scripture is truth. Scripture is the foundation for life. It is the bread of life. And so, Lord, help us to listen intently. Help us, Lord, to have open hearts and minds to hear from you this morning on, on this passage of Scripture that we dive into as we hear from James. And, and Lord, help us then not to just listen, but help us to be doers. James calls us to that. He says, don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, but do what it says. And so, Lord, as we near here the end of this book and we wrap up this series going through the book of James, by all means, Lord, would you... Would you stir in our heart and mind that we would want to do, that we would want to live out, that we would want to apply what we've been learning and put it into action. So, Lord, we just ask that you speak in this room, your Holy Spirit do a work in here. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So in recent years, there has uh, there's been much information in the media and social media networks and all the different avenues about what is the Islamic faith. And people asking questions about the Islamic faith. I was interested to learn about their five pillars of faith. It's the binding rules of conduct in this very disciplined religion. And typically if I see a, an article or something I can read, I try to read up and try to get some understanding about the Islamic faith. But this five pillars ties to their prayer life. That five times each day, Orthodox Islamic believers bow in prayer. It's amazing. Once at the morning, once at noon, once late afternoon, once at sunset, and once right before they retire to bed, they bow in prayer. They kneel, they place their forehead straight on the ground, and they offer prayer towards the holiest city that they recognize as the holiest city, which is Mecca, the home of Muhammad, the founder of the Islamic faith. It's quite a unifying ritual for them, knowing that people all over the world in, in mosques all over the world, in, in homes all over the world, Muslims are doing the same thing. They're bowing towards that same holy place. When I read our text for today, James chapter 5, I, I couldn't help but think of that, that Muslim practice and, and what they do. People, wherever they were, in whatever city they're doing, they come to a time of prayer. They stop. For some people, they're, they're at a place of job and, and they worked out something with their employment where they can have a quiet room off the spot and they actually have a rug that they lay out to bow on and to pray and they make it such a priority. For others, they're able to, hey, I'm going to go over to the mosque and I'm going to gather with others and we're going to bow together in prayers. For some, if they're out and about, they're on vacation, they're shopping, they find a way to stop and they, and they pray five times a day. Now, certainly their prayers and who they're praying to are way different than us different approach and different person we're praying to. Our prayers are not a five-time-a-day fixed ritual. Our physical position is not a fixed position, nor is our prayer directed towards Muhammad as our intercessor. But there is something to be said for facing in the same direction, not toward a city or a holy place, but toward one who created the universe. There's something to be said for that. In the verses that we're looking at this morning, James is urging us, wherever you are and whoever you are, in whatever situation you are in, if you are a Christ follower, that in our lives, we're to face God all day long, every day in prayer. And that's James' cry. Now let me remind you, 
Remind you what's happening here as James has penned out this book that we now have. There was persecution taking place. And it's not persecution like, oh, someone said something bad about me or someone, someone doesn't like the clothes that I'm wearing. It was real persecution because they were living out their faith. And if you remember, Stephen was the first martyr and he lost his life by being stoned. And the church scattered. You know, I think the American needs some persecution. I think it's okay. We're terrified of it. Oh, I can't be persecuted. You know, the church has always, has always grown under persecution. And in lands where there's persecution, like people are losing their lives right now, that's where the church is thriving. And that's what was going on. They were losing their lives and they scattered abroad. And as they scattered, the church spread. And James is telling them, listen, no matter what situation you're in, no matter what you're going through, no matter how hard the day is, whether it's been good or bad, I want you praying all day long every single day. Martin Luther said, as it is the business of tailors to make clothes and the cobblers to mend shoes, so it is the business of Christians to pray. Let me ask you, How's business been lately? How's business been lately? Is your business succeeding in prayer? Are you, are you, would you say, my business is skyrocketing, I'm having the best business right now, or is it down in the dumps? Has business crashed lately, or is it on an upward trend? If, you were, if your business or your prayer life was on a stock market, would it be trading high or trading low, so to speak? Would, 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 the, would the owner still saying, or the investor saying, I want to put money into your prayer business because your prayer business is going somewhere? Or would they be taking all the money out and saying, it's not going anywhere, I've got to reinvest somewhere else? How's business been lately? See, in this passage, James highlights several different scenarios that we need to turn and we need to put our face towards God and prayer. And he talks about when to pray. This passage not only gives us some indication of how to pray, but also helps us determine when to pray. There are four distinct times that we're to pray and get before God, according to James here. When we're dealing with suffering, we're dealing with success, sickness, and in sin. James is actually recognizing that life is made up of triumph and tragedy, of sorrow and joy. He's recognizing it's made up of illness and sickness. It's made up of ups and downs. It's made up of even sin that entangles us. We never know what to expect because life is totally unpredictable. And James understands that. And as we walk through the passage, we're going to see James says, here's some possible areas of things that are going on in your life. And he says, I want you to be a person of prayer. Let's look at the first one. The first one is pray when you're suffering. Look at our text, James 5, verse 13. says, if any of you are suffering hardships, you should pray. Are any of you happy? You should sing praises. The first part of verse 13 asks a question. Is any of you in trouble? You should pray. Are you having any kind of trouble going on? The word James uses here refers to suffering of any kind. It can, it, it can include sickness, but also covers death and disappointment and persecution. He's saying if you feel like you're going through some suffering, times are dark and days are difficult, he says you need to pray. We're in the midst of trouble. We're to pray. Psalm 34 reminds us, reminds us of this. David prayed these words or wrote these words and said, I sought the Lord and He answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. What's the trouble or the difficulty or hardship maybe that you're in right now that you're going, man, I'm kind of scared about that. I'm unsure about this. It's hard days. And the Lord wants you here today. That trouble, go to me, face towards me, come to me in prayer. 
Because that's what James is telling us to do, and that's what God wants us to do. The Bible is clear that suffering is actually the, the normal expectation of every believer. See, a lot of times we don't want it. We're like, I don't want to suffer. I don't want to go through anything difficult. I don't want to be persecuted in my faith. How dare someone speak bad about me? Oh, I put that Christian post on social media, and people are blasting me for putting that out there. Uh, and we get all scared about it. But look what Peter warns about. Peter says, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery, that word fiery actually means painful, ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, Peter's telling us, don't be shocked when difficult days come, because they will come. And even though we know that life is never easy, we can give way to self-pity or being resentful or being discouraged. And according to Peter and according to James, they're telling us, these days of difficult times, they will come. Are you prepared to be a person of prayer? See, when we sense that the pressure of life are greater than I could bear, James says pray. James is telling us, turn in one direction, turn towards God, face Him, and tell Him, hey, here's the trouble I'm walking through. Some of you, I think, need to hear that today. Maybe you're walking through some trouble, some trials, some difficulties. If James was standing here, if Peter was standing here, they would be telling you the same thing I'm telling you. Turn towards God and pray. Secondly, James tells us to praise when we have success. Look at the second part of verse 13. It says, are, are any of you happy? You should sing praises. James is saying here that not everyone goes through troubles at the same time. We could probably do a poll in this room and probably maybe 20 or 30% of you say, man, life is great right now. Everything's beautiful. Maybe 20 or 30% of you would say, man, things are just not going so good. 20, 30% of you would probably say, ah, it's just kind of even keel. And some of you would say, I have no idea. We'd be all over the board because we know it doesn't come all at the same time. And James is saying, some of you are going through trials and hardships, and some of you are going through great things. He's saying, if you're going through trials and hardships, pray. If you're going through great things, pray. It's kind of like a teeter-totter. And life does that. It goes back and forth. Maybe this minute things are great. The next minute they're bad. This hour things are great. The next hour things are bad. This day things are great. Tomorrow things are bad. This week things are great. Next week things are bad. This month things are great. Next month things are terrible. This year things are great. Next year things are horrible. And James is saying, wherever you're at, keep talking to God. Keep lifting it up to Him. The word happy means to be of good cheer. It actually suggests a state of mind that is free from trouble. When we're happy, we're to sing songs of praise. Look at Psalm 96.1. David says, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Praise His name. Proclaim His salvation day after day. We're called to sing a song of praise when we're going through times of success because good times can lead to spiritual indifference. What James wants us to do is to focus on Christ and focus on God because he knows what can happen is we can be like, oh, look what I've done. Look how good I've made things happen. And James is saying, if you're in trouble, typically what do we do? We say, God, I need you. And then when things are going well, we forget that God's the provider of what's gone well. I think if James was saying to us today, he'd be like, you get a new job? Have you prayed and said, thank you, God? You got engaged, you're going to get married? Have you prayed, you received an A on the test? Did you stop and say, thank you, God? Did you pray? You passed your driver test, you received a bonus at work. You just heard the news that we're pregnant, inspecting our first child. Did you stop and say, thank you, God? We praise you, God. We give you honor and glory. You bought a new house, you received good news from the doctor. You, a friend accepted Jesus. A child graduated from high school or from college. Did you stop and say, thank you? So James is crying out to us. When you're in trouble, pray. But when you 
are having a great time, sing His praises. Because when we sing His praises, we say, look what God has done. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about us. It's all about Him. And so James is saying, point it back to Him. When good times come, pray and praise God. When we pray, when we suffer, we praise, when we have success. And He tells us, when you have sickness. When you have sickness, James 5, look at verse 14. Are are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick, and the Lord will make you well. And if you have committed any sins, you will be forgiven. As I discuss this passage a little bit, let me just say on the front end, it's kind of a difficult passage to understand. Let me state up front, though, what the question is not. The question is not, does God answer prayer? We know He does. The question is not, does God answer prayer for the sick? That's not the question, because yes, we know that He does. The question is not, does God sometimes answer prayer in ways that seem miraculous? And again, that's not the question, because we know, yes, sometimes prayers are answered in ways that seem extremely and very miraculous. All these things are true. The focus is not here on what God is able to do. We know what God can do, because we know that God can do anything He wants to do. And the Bible even tells us that He can do immeasurably more than all that we can ask or imagine. See, the focus in this passage is in what can the church do and how should we interact and how should we behave when it comes to this idea of prayer and sickness. The verses tell us how the Bible-believing church responds to sickness when it's in its midst. What should we do for the sick? The answer is both kind of simple and it's also profound. We should pray that God would raise them up. Look what it says. There's a four-step process in this healing that we see in this passage. Step number one is that the sick person calls the elders. James says, you call the elders. Who the, el- the elders are leaders in the church. You call them and you say, we're sick. I've got something going on. I need something to pray for me. Now, we practice this. I'll tell you, we don't practice it a lot. And I'll tell you why we don't practice it a lot. Because typically, we don't get a lot of calls. Some of you all go through sickness and trials and hardships. You've been in and out of the hospital. And you go, oh, yeah, I was in the hospital for four days. You're like, what? How did, I didn't know you were in the hospital. Because you never called and said, hey, I was in the hospital. Would you come pray? But when you call, we do our best to respond and come and be with you to pray. The word sick, it's very broad here, though. It includes serious physical and mental and emotional and spiritual and relational problems that have become too heavy to bear. And the elders are called because they represent the, the larger church body and because they know how to get in touch with God through prayer. They're supposed to be men of prayer. So the elders then, step two, they go to the sick person. When a sick person calls, the elders are to go. That's their job. They go because there's strength in numbers. And by going uh, in person, their prayers can be much more fervent and it brings much more encouragement to see somebody face-to-face praying with them versus saying, oh yeah, I'm praying for you. And they don't know if you are or if you're not. So in addition, by going to the sick person, the elders communicate the message that the church has not forgotten, that you're still on our mind, that we're thinking about you, and that we care for you. The third step is the elders are to pray and anoint with oil. So when the elders come to pray, James tells them to anoint the sick person with oil. The, literal, the, the word literally means to rub oil on them. Now, the type of oil is not specified. I would guess it wasn't pen's oil. I'm thinking it's probably something more like olive oil. 
something that was kind of a pure oil that they would use, something for cooking or cleaning. Oil in the Bible was used often as a symbol of health and vitality, and kings were anointed with it because it was a visible symbol of God's presence whenever the oil was brought out. The same is true here. There's nothing magical or nothing supernatural about it. By anointing with oil, we're giving a humble reminder that all healing must come from God. And so when the oil's pulled out in a prayer time, it's like saying, hey, we just are relying upon God. It builds faith and says to the sick person, God is here and he's able to heal you. Notice that the anointing oil is to be done in the name of the Lord. It's very important because it reminds us that God is the ultimate source of all blessing and the ultimate source of all healing. The power is not in the elders. The power is not in the oil or even the prayers, but it's in the name of the Lord. That's where power comes from in our prayer. And step four is a result. It says there's healing. Verse 15 makes a rather bold promise. It says, And a prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The fourth step is simply the expected results of following steps one through three. The sick person is healed. James uses an unusual expression to describe the elder's prayer. He calls it the prayer offered in faith. This particular phrase is used nowhere else in the New Testament. So he says, when the prayer is offered in faith, in one sense, every prayer must be offered in faith, or it can hardly be called a prayer at all, wouldn't it? But he's saying, together, you must be praying in faith. When the elders pray, they're to come to God with an attitude of complete trust that he can and will do what is needed in every situation. I believe that idea of prayer of faith is similar to the gift that is of faith that is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12. It says that since faith itself is a gift of God, perhaps James means to say that when, when God wants to heal someone, he gives the elders the boldness to, to pray a prayer of faith with great confidence. Without, without doubting, the text says nothing about how, how healing will come, nor does it rule out medical care or medical healing. In fact, oil has also had a medicinal property to it and may have communicated to James's readers in the first century that God heals through prayer and medicine. Let's pray and also let's anoint oil. Let's go to the doctor, so to speak, is what they are maybe indicating. Rather quickly or slowly, or rather it's by by medicine or by miracle or by some combination of two, God is able to heal his children. And James is calling the church to be a church of prayer, trusting in God's healing power. Tony, Tony Campalo tells a story about being in a church in Oregon where he was preaching a revival. He was asked to pray for a man who had cancer. And Campalo said, yeah, I prayed boldly and prayed for God's healing over him. And the next week he got a telephone call from the man's wife, and she said, you prayed for my husband, he had cancer. And Coppola thought when he heard her use the past tense phrase that he had cancer, he was thinking the cancer had been eradicated. But before he could think much about it, she said he died. And Coppola said he felt terrible. She continued, don't, don't feel bad. When he came into that church on Sunday, he was filled with anger. He knew he was going to be dead in a short period of time, and he hated God. He was 58 years old. He wanted to see his children and grandchildren grow up. He was angry that this all-powerful God didn't take away his sickness to heal him. He would lie in bed and curse God. The more his anger grew towards God, the more miserable he was to everybody around him. It was an awful thing to be in his presence. But the lady told Kampalo, after you prayed for him, a peace had come over him and joy had come over him. Tony, the last three days have been the best days of our lives. We've sung, we've laughed, we've read scripture, we've prayed. Oh, they've been wonderful days. And I call to thank you for laying your hands on him and praying for healing. And then she said something incredibly profound. She said, he wasn't cured, but he was healed. See, sometimes we get those two words mixed up. 
We get the words of curing and healing. Curing is dealing with the physical illness. Healing is dealing with the heart. See, be aware, sometimes God will bring physical healing and sometimes it might be spiritual healing or maybe it will be both. Sometimes you're going to walk through a physical trial or a physical sickness and that may not be cured, but God may do a healing inside of you and who you are, maybe even do healing in other people. Face God in prayer when you suffer, when you have success, and when you deal with sickness. There's one more significant factor in this text. And James says to pray when you have sin. Look at the text. And if you have committed any sins, you will be forgiven. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Do you see the close relationship between physical and the spiritual here? The the if clause suggested that sin may be a contributing factor to the sickness. Now, hear me well on this. It does not necessarily mean it's absolutely the reason why you're going through sickness, but sometimes you may be going through sickness because of a struggle with sin. David, after committing some pretty bad sins, started to feel the effects in his body. Listen to how he describes it. In Psalm 32, he says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin." Brandon just read from 1 John 1, 9. When you sin, you confess, and He's faithful and just, and He'll purify us from all unrighteousness. It takes away all the sin. It's extremely important that we confess your sins to God and others. Sin can work its way into our bodies, causing us to feel like we're wasting away. And then sin becomes a roadblock in our prayer lives to us and God. We need to own up to our sin. We need to say, you know what? Yeah, I did that. If you can think of something right now that you've done or still doing, James wants you to hear, confess it to someone. You quite possibly could be coming into worship week after week after week after week and you're struggling and inside you feel sick and it could be, you know what, I'm just struggling because I've got some sin that I need to deal with and maybe you need to hear, grab a Christian brother or sister and say, I've got to talk to you, I need to confess something and let them walk with you through the journey. And Lord willing, whoever you grab will bring grace and mercy and teach you the forgiveness of God and not bring any condemnation. That's at least the goal of what we try to bring here at Center Points. See, not all sickness is caused by sin, but some illnesses stem directly from our sinful actions and attitude. Until those things are confronted and until they're confessed, it is pointless to pray for healing. And quite honestly, whenever the elders go and anoint, you, anoint the sick with oil, it's part of the elders' role is to talk with you and, hey, how's, how's life? What's been going on lately? Anything going on that you just need to confess, that you need to share, you need someone to pray with you, because that's part of the healing process is also deal with any kind of spiritual illness or sickness. There, this is a great time for confession. Our greatest problem with this entire passage, though, I think comes in verse 15. It, it seems too confident and too dogmatic for us. James states, without any qualification, that the sick person will be healed, period. And it almost seems like, I pray and it's gone. It's pray and someone's fixed. We prefer to read it as the prayer of faith that may, that may heal the sick. It, it might heal the sick. It's an undeniable fact that not everyone we pray for and not everyone we anoint is healed or, or not totally cured. There are various ways of dealing with this reality. And quite honestly, none of them satisfy me completely. 
This is one of those passages where there's a tension in the passage and it's hard to put a, a pretty bow tie on it and, and tie it off and say, good, we got, it, we got it all figured out. It's one of those where you, you, you trust in faith and you still continue to wrestle with it because there's some various ways. For instance, there is a mystery that I cannot fully explain. I do not think it helps to compare this passage with other statements about prayer in the New Testament where there's similar sweeping promises. Those statements are meant to encourage us about, about the boundless possibilities of prayer they encourage us to believe that no situation is hopeless with God. And just because the doctors have lost hope doesn't mean that the great physician has lost hope. I want to encourage you, when you're going through a sickness and the doctor says there's no hope, you're done, keep praying. Keep praying because your prayers, maybe God wants to do a, a healing of the physical body where you can look at the doctor and say, you told me there is no hope, but I have a greater physician and his name is God. How should we pray for the sick then? I think three words come to mind. One, pray aggressively. Because God can do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. So pray aggressively. Pray fervently because the fervent prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. And then pray submissively because God's understanding of the whole situation is much greater than ours. And He knows what His will is. And so we pray submissively saying, God, I trust You and I put my hands in Your hands. And whatever Your will is, that's what I want to be done. Biblical healing, most of us think it's getting rid of the disease. It's like running the clock backwards and restoring a person to the previous state. But healing is a very broad concept that involves coming to the right relationship with God first and foremost. And then it touches every part of our life, our body and our soul and our spirit. It involves the healing of our broken relationships and brings us to a place where we can receive God's blessing in a new and powerful way. Someone once said, healing in the Bible is not becoming what we were, but becoming all that God intends us to be. I wonder sometimes... The Apostle Paul referenced that he had a thorn in his flesh. And there's been all kinds of theologians who try to guess about the thorn in the flesh. And he said he had a thorn in the flesh. And none of us really know what it was. I wonder sometimes, do we deal with a sickness or with a trial or a difficulty because that's our thorn in the flesh that God says, I want you to, to learn submissiveness. I want you to learn how to walk in my will. I want you to learn to trust me even when things are not going your way and what you think they're supposed to be. So when we pray for healing, we should not focus on the physical to the exclusion of the spiritual or the emotional and relational sides of life. We, we are not healed until we are made whole on every level of existence. As I understand this text, in the light of the whole Bible, the following two statements I think are absolutely true. One, it's not always God's will to heal physically. It's just not. It's not His will to always heal physically. Otherwise, no sick believer would ever die this world will be greatly overpopulated. And sometimes we pray for that, and we should pray for that, but it's not always God's will. Secondly, it is often God's will to heal. That's why there's passages in the Bible that say pray and ask for healing. But the truth is, we have to submit to God's will. His will might be the healing of a physical body that has been sick and been broken. It might be it's time to go hell to heaven and get your new body. That might be the healing. It might be, the healing might be, the cancer is gone, the sickness is gone, so you stay here on earth and you have a testimony to tell other people about what got done. Both ways is right, and both ways God's wins. See, part of the problem is that we've lost our faith in God's will to heal and the role of the elders in a healing process. Our elders here at Centerpoint strive to be men of prayer in order for their prayers to make a difference 
They must be men who are vitally living out of faith in God, ready to pray. They're here to pray for you and pray with you. I I encourage you, church, to practice that. When you are sick, call the church. Call the elders and say, we're sick. We need someone to come pray with us. We'll do that. Let me close by asking you, though, again, how's business lately? How's business lately? Are you facing God in prayer? Face God in prayer when you suffer. Face God in prayer when you're having success. Face God in prayer when you're going through sickness. Face God in prayer when you're struggling through sin. We don't have a holy city like Mecca, but we have a holy God. A holy God who's listening to every one of our prayers.